My name is Matt Stefan, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm so glad you're here today. We're talking about unsubscribing. We're talking about making these big changes in our lives so that we can tune in to the presence of Jesus all around us. So we've gone from distracted to present, or from always needing more to feeling we have enough. So this is a talk about going from comparison to a kind of self-worth. But maybe on the deepest level, this is a talk about imagination. And where I want to start is this. You and I, and everyone we know, and everyone who has ever lived has a story. And part of my story is like this. In 1953, my grandma and grandpa on my dad's side got married at 14 and 15 years of age. Now, for my grandpa, because of a kind of Great Depression era arrangement, he wasn't raised by his family. He was raised by some other people. This was a very painful thing for him. And for my grandma, my great-grandfather had fought in World War II and shortly after the war took his life. And so my grandma and grandpa were living in these really painful family circumstances. And to escape them, they fell in love with a handsome guy or gal down the street. They'd grown up on the same block. They were high school sweethearts. And in 1954, a year later, after they'd gotten married, they were ready to have their first baby. And so they dropped out of high school. And my grandfather began working in construction. And he rode that great post-war boom to be very successful as a general contractor. He didn't have a high school degree. He didn't have a college degree. He didn't have a graduate degree, no postdoc. But because he worked very hard, he was very successful. This was the story that my family told themselves about this era of our family history. It was a story about hard work. Now, there's a lot of valid criticisms about these kinds of bootstrap stories, but it was very formative for my family. So when I went to seminary to learn how to be a pastor, where you learn about gentleness and gratitude and humility and grace, I would say things to myself like, I'm not the smartest guy in this seminary program, but I'm going to work harder at gentleness than anyone else here. I was living this story about hard work. And that's the truth about humans. We don't have stories. We don't tell stories. We live stories. So maybe part of your story is really similar to my grandparents. Maybe your family environment was really difficult, and so the story became for you about improving the family for the future generations. Or maybe your story is really different than my grandparents. Maybe a really brave great-grandparent of yours immigrated to this country and overcame hardship and injustice. So for you, the story became about this heritage of overcoming and seeking justice we all have a story, that's true, but we are all living a story. There's a branch of psychology called narrative psychology, and they suggest we don't just have a story, we don't tell stories, we're living a story. Each of us is living a story. And I want to suggest that imagination is the way that we interact with and shape and even change our story. Imagination is key for living out these stories. Two researchers on imagination, Martin Reeves and Jack Fuller, are trying to harness the power of imagination for innovation in business. They said this about imagination. Imagination is the ability to think counterfactually in a way that reappraises what is and is not possible. That's what they said. But what they meant was the power to ask what if. Imagination is the power to ask what if. Now my dog Wallace has the power to ask what if. He can ask, 
what if he could eat off the counter or what if he could snuggle in the warm blankets? And I can tell he's asking what if by the look in his eyes and the whiny noise that he makes. But humans have a far grander capacity to ask what if. We can ask, what if we put a robot on Mars that could take audio and video and then we make it happen. We imagine something and then we live it out. Imagination is helping us to shape the story that we're living. So I want to suggest when the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 that we must be transformed by the renewing of our mind, he is in part saying we have to be transformed by the renewing of our imagination. Or maybe he's even saying we have to be transformed by our ability to live a new story. So I want to take a look at a couple stories in our world. First, I want to look at the story that the Bible is telling us. And then I want to look at the story that the world is telling us about competition and comparison. And then at the end, we'll look about the story of unsubscribing. The story that the Bible is telling us can be summarized in two words. The story of the Bible is the story of goodness and of blessing. Now, the word blessing is used in the Bible about 600 times. That's quite a bit. But the word goodness is used 700 times. That's quite a lot. So the words goodness and blessing fairly summarize the whole Bible. There's a thread of goodness and blessing from the beginning to the end of the Bible. It's a story of goodness and a blessing. And at the beginning of this story, we see a poem about God building the world. And God doesn't build it with his hands. He doesn't build it with tools. He builds it with words. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, right at the very beginning, we read this, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And then it keeps going and God creates darkness and the sea and all the creatures that live in the sea and the birds in the air and all the creepy crawlies on the ground. Finally, he creates humans. And with each phase, he sees that it is good. And when he finishes the whole creation on day number six, he stops and he sees that all of it is very good, and then he rests to celebrate the goodness of creation. But there's a refrain. It's like the chorus of a really catchy song. Maybe the song Dynamite by BTS. Look it up. It's really catchy. It'll get stuck in your head. And goodness in this poem is really catchy. It gets stuck in our head. It's good. It's good. It's very good. But this isn't like a flat, boring kind of goodness. It's not a static or fragile kind of goodness. There's a dynamic to this goodness. There's a tension, there's drama to it. Even though there is a refrain of goodness, there's drama. So there's light and there's darkness. There's all the birds in the air and there's the creepy things on the ground. There's humans, they're made in God's image, but there's also a serpent that's very crafty and very deceptive. And in all of this, God keeps saying that it is good over and over again. And this refrain of goodness serves to tell us that there is a fundamental affirmation of goodness that rests on all of creation. It's affirmation of this essential goodness of what God made. At least that's before the mess. If you're familiar with the story, you know that it becomes quite a mess right after this poem concludes. The humans made in God's image are tasked with caring for this good creation, but there's one rule. They must not determine good and evil for themselves. And this serpent comes along and says, aren't you being lied to? Isn't God withholding something from you? 
by not allowing you to determine good and evil for yourselves. So the humans decide. They'll determine good and evil for themselves. And that unleashes a chain of events. And by Genesis chapter 11, the whole thing is a mess. Now, these first 11 chapters of the Bible serve to tell us the relationship between the goodness and the mess. It's one thing to say that the world is bad, but it's quite another to say that it is good but broken. So these first 11 chapters are telling us the mess does not negate the goodness. The mess isn't even equal to the goodness. The goodness is more powerful than the mess because the goodness comes from God. The mess isn't the real story. And your mess isn't your story. My mess isn't the primary story. Now you might be asking, isn't it a little bit of denial to say that the goodness is more powerful than the mess? Aren't we denying something important by saying that the goodness is bigger than the mess? Or aren't we minimizing something by saying that all the human pain in the world is merely a mess? Isn't it much bigger than a mess? And doesn't the amount of human pain in the world tell us that it is in fact a bad place to be and maybe not a good place to be? Here I think, It helps to understand how the Bible was edited together, especially this part of the Bible. Scholars tell us that there are as many as five sources underneath and someone or some group of people edited those sources into the final form that we have today. And the people that we think edited those together were some ancient Hebrew priests. And when they put it together, they did so when they were in exile. Well, what's exile? Historians tell us that in about 550 BC, the nation of Israel had a neighboring nation, the nation of Babylon, and Babylon grew into this huge empire. They were the regional superpower in about the 6th century. And in 586, Babylon invaded Israel. And it's hard for us to imagine, but uh, Babylon burned her cities to the ground and destroyed the temple and deported all of the skilled and educated laborers. It was an attempt to eliminate Israel from existence. And so these Hebrew priests who are writing this poem about goodness have been victim of this horrific act of violence. These ancient Hebrew priests knew real human pain. And real human pain is when something's broken and you can't fix it. Or when it's lost and you can't get it back. Or when it happened and you won't ever be the same again. And these Hebrew priests knew that kind of pain. And to resist this act of violence and to understand this pain that they were in, they told a story about the goodness of all creation. They didn't deny the pain. They simply said the goodness was more powerful than the pain. Now we're coming up on the one year anniversary of this pandemic. We've been doing this for a year now. And maybe for you, something's happened in the last year and It broke and you can't fix it. And it's lost and you can never get it back. And it happened and you won't ever be the same. A couple of weeks ago was the three-year anniversary uh, of the passing of my four-year-old niece. She passed away in her sleep from influenza A. And just a couple days ago would have been her eighth birthday. Sometimes something's broken and you can't fix it. And sometimes something's lost and you can't get it back. 
And sometimes it happened and you won't ever be the same. And it was the three-year anniversary of me helping to perform her funeral and grieving alongside my family and my nieces and nephews. And it was so sad to think about how the potential of her life was cut so short. And of course, we just missed her. She is so much like my daughter Margo. Margo's five now, and they're just so similar. But if you were to ask me, would I choose between her never existing, her never being a bossy three-year-old who liked to put on makeup with her mom each morning, if she never existed, or if I could choose her life exactly how it was, wonderful but cut short, well, I would choose her life exactly how it was every time. It was, it was good to be her. We're not denying the pain. We're telling a story that the goodness is more powerful than the pain. That's what this is about. That's what the story of the Bible is about. And so we shouldn't be surprised in Genesis chapter 11. Everything is a mess, but God starts over with a man called Abraham. And God says this to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God is going to bless Abraham and Abraham's going to influence the world, but he's not going to influence the world through conquest or domination or violence. It's a story of goodness and a blessing. And then when the story gets to Jesus, Jesus' earliest followers thought that all the promises made to Abraham were coming true in Jesus. All these promises were fulfilled and Jesus would bring the goodness of the world into full flourishing. And this story about goodness and blessing comes from Genesis chapter one, where the light is created and seen to be good all the way down to you and me, where in Ephesians chapter two, we're told that you and I are God's masterpiece, renewed in Christ to do good works prepared for us in advance. It's good to be you and me. We are part of this good creation. This good God is at work in our stories. We are part of the story of goodness and a blessing. This word masterpiece in the Greek means something like good craftsmanship or good creation. You and I are part of this good creation. It's good to be you. It's good to be me. God's at work in our story. And Jesus can, if we let him, bring this goodness into full flourishing. You have a story and it drives everything that you do. And what if, what if it was a story about goodness and about blessing? Not a story about how the mess is so big that we have to work night and day to get some goodness out of it, but a story about the abundant goodness over everything so that when we see the pain of the world, when we cause the pain in the world, we have the strength to face it. What if it was that kind of goodness that we were living? All of that to say this, don't miss this. Maybe you zoned out. Here's the important part, don't miss it. 
It takes a new kind of imagination to see it. But once we do see it, there is goodness all around us. The goodness of creation, the goodness of God in our lives, the goodness of just being you. And all of that is a gift. You can't earn it and you can't lose it. All this goodness, this abundant goodness, all this blessing, this profound blessing is a gift. That's the story of the Bible. But there's another story. It's a story of competition and comparison. Judith Viorst, the psychologist behind Alexander's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. She also writes books for adults. One is called Necessary Losses, and it's about the things we have to let go of to keep growing. Profound read. She argues that comparison is hugely common in adult life. It's one of the common things in every friendship. In fact, this month, March 2020, 2021, Psychology Today, the cover article is about living the good enough life, letting go of this cycle of comparison that we find ourselves in. Judith Viorst tells in Necessary Losses this story of her friend Marcy. Marcy has a third friend, and this third friend is basically perfect. She's good looking, she's wealthy, very successful at work, wonderful kids. And so Marcy confesses a sense of satisfaction when this third friend's husband misbehaves or mistreats this friend. Marcy says, I find that kind of satisfying. And then Judith Viorst confesses back that she also has a friend that's kind of perfect. And Judith Viorst was kind of satisfied when in her 50s, this perfect friend developed jowls. We can be real petty about this type of thing. There's a pastor on staff here whose name is Adam Hendricks. And when I was preparing for this sermon, he sent me this picture about preseason baseball. His team had beaten mine and he concluded that that means he's better than me. We are so petty about these things. And so I simply replied back, I'm gonna include that in my sermon. Here we are. Now, why are we petty about these things? Why are we always comparing ourselves? Well, Dr. Viorst tale about Marcy is really insightful because Marcy eventually says, you know, I don't want to be better than my friend. I don't want to be worse than my friend. I just want to know that I am equal to her. Marcy is very concerned with her rank relative to this perfect friend. We are always concerned with our rank. Now there's two ways that the ranking might go. First, we might decide we've appraised things. Now we think we are better. We've ranked ourselves better than other people. And Jesus talked a lot about this. Here's a little story of ranking yourself better than someone else that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves and rogues and adulterers or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all my income, but the tax collector, meanwhile, was standing far off. He wouldn't even look up to heaven and he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said this, I tell you, this tax collector will go down to his home justified for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves would be exalted. Two things we learned from this quick little story. One is Jesus really has no patience for us when we think we're better than other people. When we think we're better than other people, we're in real spiritual danger. The other is that when we appraise ourselves to be better than others, there's something very false about this. This man has wrongly appraised himself to be better. We wrongly appraise ourselves to be better. 
Now, the other way it can go when we're ranking ourselves relative to other people is we can decide that we're not as good as them. Maybe we're not good enough. And Brene Brown tells a little story about that. She was once booked to speak at an event and it was $1,000 a ticket to attend this event and Neil deGrasse Tyson was going to be there. And in a panic, Brene Brown called her friend and told her, I'm not good enough to speak here. I'm not good enough to teach the real adults. And her friend told her, Brene, put your measuring stick away. Stop ranking yourself. This isn't about your ranking. Now, why are we always so concerned with our ranking? We're always tabulating up the score so we can know where we rank, but why? It's because we want to know that we matter. This ranking is a way that we can know that we matter. We're always in search of evidence that we matter. And this is why it hurts when we feel like we're not good enough. We think now there's some demonstrable evidence that we don't matter. And this is why it's so hurtful to someone when we say that we're better than them. It's a subtle but significant way of telling them that they do not matter as much as we do. Now, this Psychology Today article concludes with uh, this great little question here. We keep climbing, but what's the destination? There's a vague notion of something that awaits up there that will feel like a sort of arrival, a shimmering sensation where perhaps all feelings are pleasant and all others fawn upon us. We keep climbing and climbing because we think there's a point that we could reach where finally we've proven that we matter. Mattering is the big deal in comparison. Psychologist Richard Beck is such an interesting dude. He's an experimental psychologist. He designs the psychological research, all the experiments that feed into a lot of the research that we read. He's hard at work on them. But he also has been leading a Bible study in prison for a couple decades. And he has said that experimental psychology and leading a prison Bible study have taught him more about God than almost anything else. He wrote this about mattering. We all need the gift of worthiness. The trouble is our culture keeps turning us inward, telling us that self-esteem is the pathway to mental health. What's gone wrong is that the marketed cure is actually the poison. Our problem is self-esteem, not the solution. Because at its heart, self-esteem is an evaluation. How am I measuring up? We compare ourselves to others. Am I as thin as Mariah? Or do I make as much money as Anthony? Stepping back, it's really no wonder that we're all so unhealthy and unhappy. We've told ourselves that healthy self-esteem is the surest route to being happy, but self-esteem is rooted in evaluation, comparison, and performance. Linking our psychological self-health to our ability to compare well to others has been a complete disaster. And just imagine what it would be like trying to secure self-esteem if you found yourself in prison carrying a life sentence without parole. It's pretty clear self-esteem can never be a stable and durable foundation for joy. If we're building happiness on self-esteem, we're building on sand. What we all need, what you need and what I need, Richard Beck says, and what the men in my prison Bible study need is a source of value that is durable and consistent and unconditioned. As we've learned, psychologists have a name for this. It's called mattering. The steady conviction that your life and actions have value regardless of present circumstances. And he concludes, mattering isn't a measurement. It's not an evaluation. It's not a trophy. You can't win it or lose it. Mattering is a gift that comes from someone else. Now, this 
Psychology Today article argues that in high achievement environments, the anxiety around mattering is far worse. And so I think we're especially in danger of this here in the Bay Area. There's a special spiritual danger to living in a high achievement environment. We are constantly drawn into this story of comparison. We pile up these accolades as evidence that we matter. And then we feel bad about ourselves when we meet someone with more and better accolades. But what if? What if we're living the wrong story? What if we've been counting on these achievement and accolades to prove that we matter and they just never will? Catholic contemplative Richard Rohr says that our identity built on achievement and accolades is actually the smallest version of ourselves. What if all these achievements and accolades only represent the smallest version of what you could potentially be? So this big choice lies before us. Comparison or this kind of self-worth rooted in the goodness of creation made by God. Are we gonna compete for rank and hope that we're better than someone else? Or are we gonna live in the goodness of all creation? Is it gonna be endless climbing? Or are we gonna rest in blessing? Are we gonna hide the mess? Or are we a masterpiece? Are we never good enough? Or is it good to be me? Is it goodness achieved or goodness received? Or when I am in that pain where I can't fix it and I can't get it back and it won't ever be the same, do I have to hide it because I'm terrified that it means that I don't matter? Or can I stare that pain in the face and say, it is still good to be be me because God is at work in my story. We could live a story of goodness and blessing. Now, maybe you're saying, I want to do that. I want a different kind of imagination that can see the goodness in the world and of God at work in my life. Well, Part of that has got to be meditating on Scripture. Each week while we are in Lent, we're thinking about a different spiritual habit. Now it's meditating on Scripture. Meditating on Scripture is a slow, transformative way of reading the Bible that shapes your imagination and gets Jesus' fingerprints on the way you see things. Some of our pastors have prepared some excellent Lenten resources on our website. One of them is about meditation. You should check it out. And then on Wednesday, we'll be releasing a Menlo midweek event where we'll be talking more about meditation. You should check that out. But here at the end, I wanna talk about the story of unsubscribing. What does it mean to unsubscribe? Like I said, we're in the season of Lent and Lent is the 40 days before Easter and we're preparing our hearts and minds to experience the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, sometimes the Bible talks about the death of Jesus as a punishment that we deserved, but that Jesus mercifully took in our place. In a great, generous act of mercy, Jesus was punished instead of us. But in other places in the Bible, it talks about the death of Jesus as something that he died so that we could participate in. This is what Jesus meant in Luke chapter 9 when he said, if you want to follow me, you must pick up your cross daily. This is what Paul meant in Galatians chapter 2 when he said, I've been crucified with Christ. This is sometimes called a death to self. Jesus has this new life for us, a life of goodness and abundance, but in order to live it, 
we have to die. The path to this new life is to join Jesus on his cross. He says to each one of us, you got to pick up your cross and follow me. Now, a question hangs over this entire sermon. How can it be good to be me if I've done something that I'm not proud of? How can it be good to be me if I have wanted something that I'm not proud of? Well, Jesus has made a way. It's the way of the cross. During Lent, we hear Jesus' call to join him on that cross because part of us is going to have to die if we're going to live this new life. The part of us that thinks we are better than other people, the part of us that is always climbing is going to have to die if we're going to live. And that's the story of Lent. It's the story of unsubscribing.